Corporate Unplugged opens the door to a world of people transforming business. They share their dreams, their experiences, and what they would never give up. Hey everybody, this is Vesna Luca and you are listening to Corporate Unplugged, the podcast for people shaping the future of business. So on the show today, we have Otto Scharmer, the famous MIT professor who has recently been awarded for his work to elevate mankind. And today we'll discuss the opportunities and actionable ways to transform business, society and self. A uh, short intro, Otto is a senior lecturer in the MIT Sloan School of Management and co-founder of the Presencing Institute. And in 2015, he co-founded the MIT XU Lab. And in 2020, the Gaia Journey, Gaia standing for Global Activation of Intention and Action. And this has activated a vibrant worldwide ecosystem of transformational change involving more than 200,000 users from 185 countries. And if you haven't read his books yet, I want to recommend The Essentials of Theory U and also the book Leading from the Emerging Future, From Ecosystems to Ecosystem Economies. So Otto, first of all, I want to thank you for the important work that you're doing for decades now and for all of us, actually. And I think more than ever, your uh, insights and all these tools are needed in the world as we desperately need to transition from ego system to ecosystem. And I think there is... Um, there is a recent report I heard you mention in some uh, interviews that actually concludes that three out of four people in the G20 countries want a, a profound transformation of our social and economic system. The big question is always the how, right? It is true. It's a, it's a striking number that in the uh, G20 countries, which is 60% of the world population and 80% of the global GDP, three out of four people are in support of transforming our economic systems, uh, systems transformation towards better addressing the um, environmental and the uh, social challenges uh, and emergencies that we face. In most large systems today, we collectively create results that nobody wants, right? Which is uh, destruction of our planet, right? So violence on our planet, and then basically destruction towards social institutions. We, we, we see our capacities as a society really to come together around shared challenges is going down, right? Democracies are being undermined. And even when you look at all the mental health issues, we inflict violence on ourselves, right? Not just on nature, not just on each other, but also on ourselves. The number of suicides are much higher than murder and war combined, right? So those are the three big problems. And those are that we enact, even though nobody gets up in the morning and says, today I want to destroy more of the planet, right? Inflict more harm on other people and inflict more harm on myself. No one is doing that. Yet on a collective level, that's what we are doing. And uh, from a systems thinking point of view, you would have traditionally said always that the leverage point is making systems see themselves, right? You want to hold up the mirror, right? We know that from personal, let's say, disruptions or personal moments of transformation kind of where. So 
you need a friend, you need to reach out, right? Be that a coach or be that somebody who can hold that, listen to you, kind of mirror you back. And we don't have that often kind of on an institutional level. I would say that's kind of always foundational for all system things, systems thinking. But what we learned uh, over the years is that just making systems see themselves is not good enough because that's just kind of, as long as I just see what's broken around me, I'm still in my head, right? What's really necessary to unlock the uh, creativity of the collective is I need to feel it, right? You need to make systems see and sense themselves. And I think that's a big leverage point today that if you um, put these enabling infrastructures into place that help us as systems to not only see but also sense ourselves, that really allows us kind of to, to, to bridge the knowing-doing gap in a much more effective way. Because if I don't feel the pain of the other, kind of who is on the receiving end, let's say, of structural violence, I'm very unlikely that I really move into action, right, around that. And so that's where, when you just think about learning environments, it's kind of, it has everything to do with experiential learning. It has every, everything to do with practice fields that not only address the intellect, but really address all the senses that we have as, as human beings. And we found that social arts play a very big role there in building these environments, learning and, uh, and systems change environments that are more holistic, right? Work from head, heart, and hand, but also from a whole systems perspective. I saw somewhere you mentioning just a case, uh, you've been working with a lot of companies, but there was some specific company, I think, in Singapore, some kind of tech company, where you have done a very explicit kind of work of how they can get into the sensing mode, right? Into feeling, into the consequences of what they are doing and, and how they're doing it. It's uh, one of the biggest fintechs in the world, 800 million plus users, many of them in China, but also internationally, particularly in Southeast Asia. So the uh, CEO told me the following, and that may have a familiar ring for many <laughs> of the listeners here. He said, we have the most brilliant people in our uh, leadership team, right? The top 30. They are brilliant in their own area of responsibility, but collectively, our IQ is rather low. Can you help? We took an existing leadership challenge they, they face as a team, which is globalization, right? How to move kind of from a primary focus that was more focused on, on China to uh, the realities in other countries, which are very different and kind of uh, also more a multi-regional perspective. The way we went about that is basically to dedicate for that a week or almost a week, four days, there was a little kind of a mini training before in basically listening, different levels of listening. And then they did a stakeholder mapping. And we identified two countries in Southeast Asia and 15 people went to country A, 15 to country B, and in small groups of two or three or so, they visited all the various stakeholders, all the way from the um, regulators to their partners, to their customers, to uh, unbanked people, right? People with no financial resources whatsoever, 
So to give them just a feel for the situation, right, of, of the complexity there, and their job basically was listening to all of them, right? Don't sell them something. Don't explain to them, right? Don't, uh, you know, uh, tell them wh what, uh, what they should be doing. Just listen and begin to see your own situation through the eyes of these stakeholders. So that's what they did. Two days, 15 of them in country A, 15 of them in country B. And then the next two days, we came together in Singapore to make sense of all of it, right? So partly with just, you know, sharing and partly with kind of embodied learning methodologies. But basically what happened is that the whole way they talk with each other, right, the top 30 group was transformed. The way they talked about these challenges before was Each of them was basically arguing from their silo view, right? So whatever their area of responsibility was. And then kind of moving into back and forth and kind of more debate style of conversation. And what happened there in, in Singapore is just based on their previous two days. It was an eye-opening experience for all of them. By sharing all these, what they learned and saw, They developed and also listened to, you know, what resonated with others, what was a different, what, what they brought. They began to see their own job and their own work as a leadership team, the team at the top of this, uh, uh, you know, huge company through the eyes of their stakeholders, right? And that shifted them automatically into a dialogue, right? Dialogue is not just people talking to each other. Dialogue is the capacity of a system to see itself, right? To inquire into your own assumptions. For example, any kind of strategy work, right? What is strategy work about? It's, it's like challenging your own assumptions about the future and, and, and what you need to do. Noticing what your assumptions are and then uh, trying out different perspectives. What if, right? So what if kind of this assumption would be different? So that's what they did naturally because they went through this very simple intervention, just kind of listening, right? It's like the simplest thing on earth uh, in a way, right? Listen to your stakeholders. It has been said many times, but what I'm often noticing is it's all about the how, the micro practices, right? So whether you really give people tools that you can hold back your own reactions and really take in what someone else is sharing with you and whether you have a little bit like a disciplined approach to then also analyze what you learned, what you learned about the stakeholder, what you learned about yourself, and then some methodology of sharing where they basically also moved into listening to each other. And that kind of automatically puts you in a different cognitive space And dialogue, at the end of the day, is thinking together, right? Dialogue is the process of thinking together. And when you can do that as a leadership team, that's really the key to deal with complexity, right? Because the challenges companies face today, they are of a nature that no single person can just understand that just based on pre-existing knowledge, right? You need to really have this more complex, and that's, you know, all leadership work, really, right? To have these uh, more complex containers, which to some degree, like in this case, the, the meeting in Singapore was really, they needed to sense, right? It was a sensing journey, and they needed to move into a process of sensing together, which is seeing their own issues through not only 
stakeholder A, B, C, but, you know, through the entirety kind of of that constellation of perspectives beginning to uh, see themselves differently and also beginning to move into a process of thinking with each other differently about the challenges that they face and the choices that they needed to do. That's an example of how to make a system sense and see itself. And the method in this case was stakeholder interviews, right? Just go out, listen to your stakeholders and have a disciplined approach of sharing it back and moving into a process of thinking together. It's really a beautiful, clear uh, example. Are there any other, like, how can I say, concrete tools or ways of doing these things that you typically use that you want to mention? Because I remember there's a friend of mine, Charles uh, O'Malley, and I know that he uh, is very inspired by your work and is using it a lot through his work with United Nations. But he says very, very, very often still people are sometimes struggling with how to like transform late into a practical organizational change, all these things, everything from, you know, policies and procedures and behaviors and all of that. But particularly, he says, when you consider that it's not just about addressing an internal organizational challenge, it's also the fact that organizations exist within the wider systems that also then incentivizes particular ways of working and can be, you know, difficult to, to break out of. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's very evident, definitely, in the UN system, but it's also evident for many companies, particularly uh, in the more traditional industries, right? Let's think about the automotive industry or, or transportation industry or so. What have we seen? Well, all the major players basically getting stuck in their, in their own bubble, right? So, and that's why now Tesla is worth more than the next 10 companies combined, right? So, if you're just inside your own bubble, be that your institutional bubble or your industry bubble, and you live in a moment of disruption where profound changes are happening, not just in your industry, but also in society, right? And, and, and to some degree, even on a planetary level. Well, that's, you're very unlikely, right, to be on the, um, you know, receiving end of, of, of disruption rather than, you know, sensing and connecting with these forces of change and forces of disruption that put you more in a place that you could co-shape these changes. So I think that's definitely a problem that we see in a challenge that we see in all sectors today. And to me, how do you address them? Two main things. In any kind of system, where does the new, in a, more, in a situation of disruption, show up first? And the answer is not in the center, right? Not in headquarters, right? It, it shows up first at the periphery, right? You need to bring in the periphery. And that's as true for group composition, right? When you put together strategy teams or innovation teams, you want to go to the younger people, to the more diverse people, people more from the edges of the system, right? Not just kind of the headquarters experts, because then you only get more of the same. And when you, so in the U process, what we do is kind of these um, learning or sensing journeys. And I just gave one example, but it can be focused around certain innovation challenges, right? That's where you intentionally go to places that are, relevant, right, about for kind of places of most potential for the challenge you face with, but you know only very little about. And that's often a good uh, selection criteria. So going to the edges is one. And the other one is really these 
inner discipline and the inner capacities to activate your deeper levels of listening, right? And so in theory, you, I differentiate between four different levels. First one is downloading, which is not really listening. You only listen to what you already know, right? Sadly, that's often what we do, you know, but that's just the first level, right? So second level is factual listening. And that's, you notice something new. You notice disconfirming data, something that's surprising, maybe even annoying you, right? So so you didn't expect to see. And as a professional, you learn that in all sciences, all research methodologies tell you when that happens, what you do is lean in, right? You don't discount, you lean in because whatever is disconfirming data today is the source for innovation tomorrow. So that's number two. But then when you lead systems change, there are two more levels. The third level is empathic listening. What's shifting is the inner place from where I'm listening. So I begin to listen to a story from the viewpoint of the user, right? My stakeholders. And, you know, all approaches to, say, user-centric design, empathic design, and, and innovation and so forth are all based on that. You need to put yourself into the shoes of the user first before you start to think about innovation, right? So that's kind of the um, level three. And then level four, I would say, is something that I call generative listening, which really has to do with a deeper space of listening that has to do with connecting with the deeper sources of knowing and with what is really wanting to emerge. The capacity to slow down, basically, right? And and to be more present with uh, what is not only what has emerged, but what is wanting to emerge. So that's kind of the second aspect, right? These these different levels of listening. Now, how do you apply that? Many companies are familiar with one methodology, scenario thinking, right? And I think uh, whenever you deal with disruption, it's a perfect occasion to use scenario thinking as an approach. And as everyone knows, the key point about scenario thinking is you're not predicting the future, right? No, that's not what you're doing. Uh, So scenario thinking is working with multiple possible stories of the future. And that's, of course, what we all needed to learn over the past years, right? Because whatever your plan is, guess what? So it's probably not applicable. So all your prediction, right? So you're not predicting the future. You need to be a lot more modest. You need to display a lot more humility, really, by saying, well, what if? So if this happens, that's what we do. If something else happens, this is what we are going to do. And so... That's one methodology. What I found when you really do a a real scenario process, that does take a lot of time, right? And so to do it well really does take a lot of research. Often when you are like in in situations with leadership teams, that time is and, and the resource that it takes, right, is not available. So therefore, what I have been using as an um additional methodology over the past years and I found really work great is something we call 4D mapping, right? Because often you are in a situation, you have a group or a leadership team for a day or two and, you know, how can you really create a transformative experience within, say, two, two or three hours or something? that really is uh, shifting people's mindset and is opening their eyes towards what might be possible. 
and giving a lot more, maybe also offering a language about the, some of the deeper systems issues that usually prevent us from moving from the current system to something new. And in this method, that's based on something we call social processing theater. And, you know, a number of listeners are probably um, of your podcast are probably familiar with constellation work, right? Systems constellation, Hellinger's uh, work. And so you could say social processing theater or this 4D mapping is uh, a blend between constellation work, between stakeholder mapping, and between mindfulness, right? And mindfulness, I mean, and awareness practices, right? And so what I mean with awareness practices, that we access the deeper levels of knowing. So basically, I believe as a leader, right? And I learned that from Ed Shine, my teacher here at MIT, everything you experience is data about the situation, about the relationship, about the group, about kind of what's happening. And so what we do in this uh, 4D mapping is accessing these deeper level of experience and making them visible, making them explicit. So it's a mode of mapping the system, current system, but also emerging future possibilities based on methods of embodied learning. And what it includes is kind of traditional stakeholder mapping methods, but also three roles that, that relate to the three dimensions I mentioned before, which is the ecological divide, the social divide, and the spiritual divide, right? The ecological divide, how do you bring that dimension into a stakeholder mapping? Well, one role is mother nature, right? Mother nature is always... So that's kind of how you bring that, you know, uh, planetary dimension into the conversation, into the decision-making, right? Social divide, how do you get that one in? Well, that's easy, right? Always bring in the most marginalized groups, those that are usually not at the table with decision-makers, right? So let's say on a country level, that's often like, you know, farmers or fishermen or kind of... So whoever happens to be at the margin of the, uh, of the system... And then the spiritual divide, how would you bring in that? Well, often that's the voice of the future, right? Could be future generations, could be children. Sometimes it's kind of the aspiration of a country, kind of. So you let that kind of the respective group decide. But those are the three must-haves that one way or another need to show up because only then we can map the system in a way that, brings in the key dimension everyone is facing today, which is that, you know, we not only face industry transformation in the traditional way, but we face a planetary emergency. We face a situation of social disruption, which will significantly also change kind of the context of business. And then there is this awareness dimension or kind of the spiritual divide I would say kind of that has really to do with the, um, it's not the disconnect between self and nature and self and other, but the spiritual divide is a disconnect between self and self. In other words, between my current self, my small as self, who I am today, and my emerging future self, my highest future possibility, my capital as self. And this, if these two selves, who I am today and who I could be tomorrow, if they are not 
resonating, if they are not connecting with each other, right? So what, uh, what does that look like and feel like? Well, I feel loss of energy, symptoms of burnout, anxiety, depression, and possibly even risk for suicide. And that, of course, is exactly something not only through COVID, right, but really throughout the past decade, which has, with the rise of social media, right, particularly for young people, has increased disproportionately. It's one of the major challenges. Everyone knows about the environmental challenges we face, even though we don't do much, right? But but it's we have the awareness, right? Everyone knows about societies are breaking apart. There's something we need to do there, right, with democracies and so on. But this interior dimension, right, the, the, what I call the spiritual divide, the disconnect between self and self, that's, I think, largely unattended to and if I have learned anything in the past two decades of doing this work, it is that the only way of addressing the challenges we face collectively, right, not only on the level of institutions or industries, but really also as a society, the only way of addressing these challenges from, from an institutional leadership point of view collectively is by integrating these three aspects, right? As long as we say one ministry is in charge for the environmental stuff, and then we have like some other families in charge of the social stuff, and then, you know, we have this interior dimension, I don't know what it is, health or education or something. No, it's not. When you split these three crises that we, that we face today, if you split them, they belong to each other. We know that it's common knowledge today, right, when, in, when you work with the UN system and with others, that you cannot address the environmental issues if you don't address inequity, right? That's kind of, it's two sides of the same coin. And that's kind of, um, everyone acknowledges that today. And I think the next step we'll see in this movement is you cannot address either of those things if you are not bringing in also the interior dimension, the key leverage for affecting change outside of us lies in shifting the inner place from that we operate. That essentially the inner and the outer are not separate. And as a leader, what you do is that you evolve ever more conscious and aware approaches to shift the inner place from that you operate in order to be more effective as a change agent, right, or as an as a ecosystem leader in the larger context you're operating in. It would be wonderful if we had more leaders also speaking up uh, about this, I think, you know, pointing to themselves maybe as a reference and say that they are turning inwards uh, and connecting with themselves inwards in order to be able to do the fantastic work they're doing. So it becomes more kind of visible for people. Otherwise, I get to hear from so many leaders all the time that, yes, I understand, but I don't really understand or I don't know how or whatever. So they need, uh, I think the power of example in, in, in this case is, is very good. I know that you, in your book, you also mentioning your background from where you grew up in Germany and so on. And you were making an, uh, kind of a connection between, you know, this transformation literacy out in the world among leaders and then making a point around, uh, if you connect it with the story of a farmer, that a farmer cannot drive a plant to grow faster, a leader, uh, or change maker cannot force like practical results. Instead, attention must be on 
on improving the quality of the soil. Exactly these things that we were talking about, the quality of relationships among individuals and teams and, and give rise to this kind of beautiful collective behavior and practical and also creative results. So I thought that was a very good kind of analogy as well. Yeah, no, it, it's true. And uh, so uh, you're right, kind of on, on the first part of what, what you said, also the um, you need examples. And that's actually how I stumbled into that uh, whole dimension of, because you can say, okay, let's kind of, what is really leadership? Kind of, we know a lot about the what, what successful leaders do, right? And we also know a lot about the how, kind of the, the, the processes, the methods that people use. But there is really a, th a third dimension, right, that we know uh, much less about. And the third dimension is not the what, not the how, but it's the source, the inner place from that leaders operate. And the moment, so I, I can, you know, uh, I remember kind of the moment I was really stumbling into that. I was listening to, I, I did an interview project with 150 leaders and innovators kind of who really created new things in their own area of expertise and work and 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 I and I heard this that many of them really talked about this deeper interior dimension that that I was not really that aware of before. And one of them, so the late CEO of Hanover Insurance, Bill O'Brien, he had this beautiful way of summarizing that. So reflecting back on his many years of leading transformational change, here's what he said. He said. The success of an intervention depends on the interior condition of the intervener. So in other words, the success of what I do as a leader depends on the inner place from that I operate. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, so we know everything about the what, we know everything about the how, much, uh, many things about the how, but the inner place, the source dimension, that's what we really only know very little about. And that really put me on that, on that path to investigate these interior conditions um, more. And today I would describe them really with the concepts of the open mind, open heart, open will. Kind of, those are kind of the interior condition, opening the mind, opening the heart, opening the will. I think that's what we see when co-creativity is happening in teams, you know, in an organization, in collaborative relationships. But when you look at the larger picture, right? So what have we seen in the last five, six years or so, right? What do we see in the uh, Ukraine? What do we see, you know, Putinism, Trumpism, and the, all these phenomena? It's the absence of everything I just said, right? It's not the opening of the mind-heart will, but it's the closing, it's the freeze reaction of the mind-heart will, aka amplification of ignorance, hate, and fear. So it, it's not new. We, we had these phenomena before, but I think what leaders face today is that you need to create these areas and arenas of collaboration and co-creation. That's the only way we can move forward, right? Increase the areas of collaboration and co-creation in a context where the toxicity, right, kind of these toxic social fields that have to do with the freeze reaction of the mind-heart-will is ever more amplified, right? So, and that's, so that's why... As a leader, you need to develop the capacity to transform these 
patterns of behavior that are dysfunctional and that we see yet on many larger systems levels are being enacted. And so that's, I think, a big challenge kind of that we face and which is pointing towards building these capacities and strengthening these capacities and building containers where in relationships and ecosystems and in in teams, we can really shift the way we operate. That, you know, has been, I would say that was important in the past, but today it is really mission critical. Also, going back to you, what is your 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 passion? You know that word uh, in in Latin, patire, which means that you're also willing to suffer for something if needed. You're that much into it. Well, you mentioned kind of the um, the farm where where I grew up on, right? And that's kind of so my my uh, father and my mother they were among the pioneers of regenerative farming, right? And uh, when they started that some, I don't know, 65 years ago or so, everyone thought they were crazy. As a regenerative farmer, right, what is your focus? Increasing the quality of the soil. That's the agricultural side. But if I look at my work that I'm doing right now, and I guess many of the um, people, uh, listeners kind of that listen to this podcast and anyone dealing with leadership and change, really, what has most of our attention? Well, improving the quality of the social soil, it's the quality of our relationships. For example, the, the Singapore story, what they're told is an example of changing the quality of relationships, right, to the larger ecosystem and thereby kind of connecting also with your own colleagues and the leadership team in a different way. So a lot of uh, leadership work really has to do with transforming the quality of relationships, right? Moving from a a system that's evolving around ego system awareness or silo silo mindsets to one more uh, based on a systems view or an, or an ecosystem awareness, that does require kind of a, a shift in relationship. That's where my passion really is, right? How to create spaces, learning spaces that allow us as um, individuals to access our own experience in a deeper level and where we see how what we do and how we pay attention to a situation has a direct impact on what's happening uh, in a system. And that if we want to transform the system outside of us, and there's today there's no question, yes, we need to do that, right? All the SDGs and so on. So the main leverage point, right, is to start with shifting the interior conditions from that we operate, which means kind of to really bring into focus an interior dimension of leadership, right? Both on a personal level, but also on a collective level that in the past has been often left out. And what I find interesting is, if you really want to boil it down to really simple, what is leading by the U process or leading with awareness-based systems change? It's basically leading by letting go and letting come, right? Now, at the bottom of the U is really this letting go and letting come. Letting go of what? Letting go of the old, right? Including kind of my old behaviors and also maybe two frozen identities, right? Uh, uh, And opening up to that other part of ourselves that is not 
yet fully manifest, but that's a field of possibility and that we can connect with when we just pay attention to it in the right way. And that's where, where my passion is. And what I learned is that it may have taken quite a while to do that in the past, but if you live in a moment of disruption, as we do, and the only thing we know about the future is this, disruption is going to go up, not down. So if you live in this environment, it means that profound shift in awareness and consciousness can happen uh, for a lot more people a lot faster than ever before. And that's exactly coming back to the Ukraine, what you see, right? So people are really in the Ukraine. They're really also surprised themselves. I mean, I, I, I saw one... Uh, several voices where they said, well, I was just a regular kind of computer guy, right? And leader this, leader that. And now kind of we are all working together, right, in, in this. So I think that we as human beings have the capacity to put our shared attention together on a challenge that we face and then rise together to the occasion. We saw that in part in COVID. Yes, there are other aspects of the COVID response where we didn't do it, Right. But you saw that happening on many local levels, an amazing amount of open-hearted collaboration and, and response there. When we come together, when together we rise to the occasion, that really is a new form of leadership. It's an ecosystem leadership that is mission critical and needs to be applied to the true future challenges that we are facing, right, which is you know, the, the climate destabilization, which is biodiversity, and which also has to do with these other two challenges, right? Inequity and with the inner uh, interior dimension challenges around mental health. We are rising to the occasion as people in general when there is a challenge and we kind of need to, need to unite around something. But it would be equally beautiful if we would rise to the occasion where we can really vision what future do we want to see, right? And do some backwards engineering together rather than just like being all the time, very often in the problem solution soup, you know? Absolutely. I think kind of so to understand that leadership is primarily around problem solving is already starting at the wrong foot, right? If you do it that way, you're just reacting against the current and the way I would see leadership is leadership is the capacity of a system to sense and shape the future. So it's the capacity of a system to sense emerging future possibilities and then embody, right, act from an embodiment of this kind of felt connection to, to our highest future possibility. And I think that is, um, you know, so, so we, we're ending kind of with the same number uh, at, uh, that we started with at the beginning, right? That's why many people feel we live in such a time where such a profound shift could happening and should be happening. And many people want to be part of that, but most people don't really know how, how to do it. And that's what my real passion is to build an infrastructure for the how that democratizes access to transformation literacy, if you want. So it democratizes access to the methods, tools, and spaces for transformation for those of us who want to participate in such spaces that we have an easy access to that. And that's what I call 
youth school for transformation. And it's something that where what you mentioned earlier, the ULAB and Gaia and so forth are components of, but, you know, are just kind of a gateway into a deeper developmental space that we need. The only way change happens in society, big change, is through movements, right? The only way movement happens is that you have enabling infrastructures for these deeper. So it was like back then in the old days in uh, Eastern Europe, it was kind of the churches, right? Kind of that was the infrastructure for the civil rights movement. And we had uh, similar infrastructures in other areas of the world. But today... We need these enabling infrastructures, and often they are not there. And it often has to do with small groups and, and, and practices, and people kind of spending time together and accessing their deeper aspiration for change uh, that they already bring, but that they often don't have um, dedicated attention towards because we, we, we are missing these uh, enabling spaces. So Otto, my last question to you is this one. What do you think the world needs most at this time? Spaces that allow us to realign attention and intention. If we can do that, not only as individuals, but together, it's an enormous force for positive change that's being activated. The future that we are working towards, I, I don't need to plan that out. It's already there as seeds. But what's not there is spaces that put the attention onto these seeds in a way that would really help them to grow. These kinds of um, deeper learning and change environment, that's what I believe is most missing today. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for being on the show and uh, thanks for sharing everything. To find out more, uh, you will find links and show notes on corporateunplugged.com. So thanks for listening to the show. To make it easy for you to find this show again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and share this episode with one person you know would benefit from hearing it. And please rate and review this podcast if you enjoyed it. I'm Vesna Luca and you've been listening to Corporate Unplugged. Until next time, live with purpose and remember to unplug. Ciao.